millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. I should say the prize-winning Mariner's Mirror podcast. Yes, we were awarded a Certificate of Merit at the Maritime Media Awards this year. And you wonderful listeners are all a key part of our success. So thank you, thank you for listening. And do please continue by helping to spread the word. The best way to do that is to tell people about the podcast and of course to share all of our content on social media. And if you're listening on iTunes, please leave us a review. Thank you, Tyson, Tyson, Tyson1986, for doing just that. He writes, This is an excellent podcast which both entertains and informs. It covers all aspects of maritime history. I've learnt a lot. Well, that's a wonderful review, and thank you very much indeed for getting in touch. If you do leave us a review, I will give you a name drop and read out your review. Now, we're a hair's breadth away from making 350,000 downloads, so please help us get there. We're also being given a run for our money by our very own YouTube channel, which has really taken off in the last few weeks. We've had over 80,000 views in the last month alone. So another thing you can do is to watch all of our YouTube content, but most importantly, hit the like button when you've watched one of the videos and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Now, today is an important day in my calendar as it's the first day of the Ashes and I'm a very big cricket fan. You may be listening to this not at the cricket, but I promise you I will be either at the cricket, listening to it or watching it. And the best thing to do in preparation for watching cricket is, yes, you've guessed it, record a podcast about it. So here we go. It also falls perfectly into our current theme of Maritime Australia, because today I'm talking to Natalie from the SS Great Britain in Bristol about the first ever English cricket team to be taken to Australia. Now, she knows a thing or two about this because the team travelled on the SS Great Britain, and they've even put together a mini exhibition at the museum, exploring the history of this key moment in the history of global sports. So now we're all on the pitch, warmed up and ready to go. I think it's time to play. And opening the bowling, we have Natalie Fay from the SS Great Britain. Right arm over. Natalie, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. 
I'm very excited about the cricket beginning. Are you? Are you going to be watching any? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not the biggest cricket fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe we'll turn you. I am the biggest cricket oh, fan. Oh, OK, lovely. So, um, very excited to be um, uh, uh, talking about a bit of cricket history and maritime history all yes. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be talking about the Great Britain taking these cricketers across to Australia. But uh, that was in 1861. Just for those of you who don't know, actually, I should say, um, please go to our back catalogue and listen to the episode on the Great Britain when I went and visited um, all of uh, uh, the wonderful people working there. So if you want a general history, listen to that episode. But firstly, Natalie, just give us a few sentences for those who may not know about uh, about the Great Britain and what happened before 1861. Yeah, so um, the SS Great Britain Britain is a the uh, screw-propelled steamship uh, that was designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the great engineer. It was launched in 1843 uh, primarily as a luxury ocean liner, taking first-class passengers only from Liverpool to New York. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, she ran aground in 1846 and bankrupted the Great Western Steamship Company, who owned her at the time, and she was sold on to Gibbs Brighton Co. And they uh, reconfigured her to do the Australia run as an emigrant clipper, building an extra deck on her on top and uh, accommodating for over 700 people and actually extending to carry all four classes of passenger, so first, second, third and fourth, which is commonly known as steerage. And she did that primarily for a large portion of her working life until uh, she was transformed uh, into a windjammer, which is a cargo ship uh, taking coal from Wales to San Francisco. So, yeah, so she had a very long, illustrious life. And unfortunately, she was damaged in a storm coming back from San Francisco uh, and had to kind of haul into the Falkland Islands to seek refuge, where she stayed until... uh, 1969 when she was salvaged and brought all the way back to Bristol exactly 127 years to the day that she left. Amazing story and a wonderful whistle-stop tour. That's great. Um, so 1861, so 20 years or so after she was launched um, and she's off to Australia. She so what- is. Yeah, what happened there? Whose idea was this? So the whole idea behind the first cricket tour um, was kind of the brainchild of uh, two sponsors who were called Spears and Bond and their English agent, W.B. Mallam, They basically wanted to capitalise on how popular cricket was becoming in Australia. Uh, So they decided to try and put together as kind of a publicity stunt, if you will, a team to take over to tour Australia for the first time ever. They'd not long come back from the... um, first American tour so they thought uh, what a better way to kind of make a name and kind of get some publicity then kind of put together this amazing team the All England 11 to start the first ever Australian tour for cricket. Yeah and it's interesting that they went on the SS Great Britain and maybe that was all part of the publicity stunt because you know there, there wasn't really another ship like her at all, that she had a significant history. I think that's a lovely decision. Absolutely, yeah. So um, she was kind of, the ship was the the first of her kind to kind of combine three really important technologies uh, and be able to take people halfway across the world um, in relative luxury. So, um, yeah, it was probably the the best ship for the job. 
1861, did she look as she did when she was launched in 1846, or had she undergone changes to her rig or engine or anything? Yeah, she had. Um, by this point, she had undergone um, a, a configuration change. Uh, so they'd basically, in order to get to Australia, they couldn't rely just on steam power alone. Mm. Uh, so they kind of reconfigured the masts to enable square sails, so that they could pick up a large amount of wind and use that primarily to get them as much of the way as possible to Australia with using the steam-powered engine as a backup when the wind was failing them. Uh, and they'd also built another deck on top of the current weather deck that you can right. see today so that they could accommodate for a large portion of people. Uh, so when she was going to New York, she could carry up to about 300 people at a time. But when she was going to Australia, she could carry almost 700. Wow. That's a lot for a ship. I mean, the ship, the SS Great Britain is very big for yes, a ship of yeah. her age, but 700 people on board is uh, quite, quite significant. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's an important point to make that, um, yes, we're talking about the cricketers going, going, um, going over to Australia, but there were, you know, it sounds like there were 690 other people on board as well. <laughs> well, um, it, what it, do we... it would vary depending from voyage to voyage. <laughs> I don't think they were ever kind of fully, fully uh, subscribed. No, okay, but they're not on their own. The cricketers were not on their own. Absolutely I think that's what's not. worth, no, that's what's worth, worth emphasising. Um, so, more broadly, uh, what do we know about life on board the Great Britain in the 19th century? What would it have been like? Well, actually, we know a great deal, um, and that is all due to diaries, letters, and even ships' newspapers that still survive. Mm. Uh, I love a ship's newspaper. Oh, They're I brilliant. Love, I've got one in front of me now. It's uh, oh. Yeah, they are... Uh, I think, for me, my favourite is the ship's newspaper because it just gives you the most brilliant picture of what life was like. And essentially, living on board, they... The passengers and crew very much treated the ship like a floating town. It mm. was very much taking kind of the, the daily life that they were used to and the hubbub from kind of on land and putting it into a vessel that was sailing on the sea. So you get this really beautifully vivid pictures from some of the accounts in the ship's newspaper and the diaries and the letters of just what general daily life was like. I mean, you had your first class passengers uh, who were enjoying about almost five meals a day. I mean, you've got to imagine there's... Um, they have to try and keep themselves busy. I mean, on average, it takes about 60 days to reach Australia by ship yeah. in the 19th century. And the SS Great Britain was one of the fastest. So uh, they have to kind of really entertain themselves. A large kind of focus for everyone on the ship was what they were eating, yeah. who they were talking to, who their fellow passengers were. Especially in first class, they would look forward to putting on concerts, plays, mm. judge and jury trials. Uh, they would play games. Very similar all the way down in steerage they would be having parties uh, if there were any uh, musically gifted uh, individuals on board they would get together a band and they would play music for people to dance to they were putting in in the newspapers they were putting in wanted ads for any potential work they can gather for when they land in Australia they are trading bartering um, so yeah so there's there's lots going on on board have you been on a cruise ship, Natalie? I haven't, no. Oh, OK. Well, uh, I've been on a couple. And um, 
one of the interesting things about them is that everything is organised for you nowadays. So there's like a whole programme of activities and there yeah. are professional people who, who organise stuff. Absolutely. You, you know, you get, the, you get the idea. But uh, what I love about these kind of 19th century stuff is everyone does it themselves. Yes. They all kind of get together and um, it does make me wonder what would happen on a modern cruise ship if everyone was left alone. <laughs> Can you um, imagine? <laughs> <laughs> be, that'd be brilliant because you'd suddenly find the person who likes doing Amdram stuff and they'd put on a play and then, yeah. you know, so you'd, you'd have a kind of version of Shrek the Musical going on or whatever it'd be. You'd have some music elsewhere. I think it'd be, it would be yeah. fun and um, a bit more kind of unexpected and unpredictable. Yeah, but um, it's, it's great because you can see the amount of effort that these people put into it. So, yeah. like, in... Um, one, uh, the second All England Eleven team to travel on board the ship carried E.M. Grace, the famous brother of W.G. Grace. Who used to live in Bristol. Who I walked past his house in, the yeah. other day. Yeah. So if you're in Bristol, go to Victoria Square up in Clifton Village. Very beautiful. Yeah. And uh, you can see the W.G. Grace house. He was doing well for himself if he lived in that house. That's oh, what no. I always thought. He, he did very <laughs> well for himself. Uh, and... Uh, uh, we're very lucky to actually have his diary from when he was travelling on board and he records in great detail all these amazing kind of concerts they would put on kind of you know the the songs that were being sung and who was kind of singing them and the order of composition it's brilliant brilliant let me just add this. It's a good way of helping people. So if you've come to this podcast because you're interested in cricket rather than maritime history, then this might help you with some kind of sense of timing. So we're talking here about E.M. Grace, who's the elder brother of W.G. Grace. Yes. So this tour to Australia happens just before W.G. Grace starts playing professional cricket and becomes um, outstanding and um at the time, it was his brother, E.M. Grace, also known by his initials, who was the business. Um, I was reading about E.M. Grace, actually, before we came on, and uh, he did one of the most extraordinary things in all of cricket history. He carried his bat through an entire innings. This is playing for yeah. the MCC, which means he opened the batting and he was also in at the end. Everyone else was out apart from him. And then he took all ten wickets. <laughs> Seems yeah. a bit of a legend. Uh, typical E.M. Grace fashion. It's definitely, um, reading his diary, you definitely get a sense of who he was as a person and his character, and that very much encapsulates who E.M. Grace was as a man. Mm. Are there any sketches in the diary? No sketches, no. Uh, but he did he did save a couple of bills of fare. He wasn't very impressed with the uh, the, the food that was offered on board. Right. So, uh, yeah, he didn't think it was uh, worth the value of the money that he was paying. Well, his sponsors were paying. Um, so, yeah, he did uh, keep a few bill of, bills of fare for prosperity, but there were no sketches. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, uh, assuming these guys are amateur cricketers, right? They're not professionals. So what did E.M. Grace do when he wasn't playing cricket? Uh, so he actually um, he followed his father and trained as a doctor and a surgeon. Oh. It's a really good point you make about the kind of amateur and professional because uh, I think there was quite a lot of controversy around E.M. Grace still kind of get, having the title of an amateur cricketer because it was yeah. very um, class orientated and a professional cricketer was usually a working class individual oh, who like literally needed to be paid as a cricketer in order to earn a living and provide for his family whereas an amateur cricketer was uh, someone of better means who uh, may have another field of profession that kind of provides their daily living and they play cricket just as passion for passion. It's interesting isn't it I wonder how it kind of works in time. So you've got 60 days to get there, mm-hmm. 60 days to get back, that's 120 days. Um, how long were they playing cricket in Australia and New Zealand? They went to New Zealand as well. Yes, so I think they were there for a couple of months because it made sense. Uh, they travelled that way, so they needed to be there for, for a couple of months. Uh, and interestingly, with the first cricket team, they were actually offered the opportunity to stay in Australia Right. And kind of, you know, take on professions and earn a living. Uh, only one member of the, the the first All England eleven cricket team took that up, and that was Charles Lawrence. And he, he made quite a name for himself over in Australia. But then, yeah, all the others came back straight after the, the tournament was over. But it was still a significant chunk of time. You know, it's eight months or whatever it might, yeah. might be. But th- they could all afford to do that and to not... Um, uh, not work. So we, we've heard about E.M. Grace and his diary. What do we know about his fellow team members? Uh, in the first All England 11 cricket team, because they, they were literally the first team to be going to play uh, the tournament in Australia, there was quite a buzz on the ship about them being on board and about what they were doing. So they feature quite heavily in uh, the ship's newspaper at the time, which was called The Cabinet. And we have some really, really lovely kind of little descriptions of each of the team members that were on board. Two of uh, the most prominent is uh, H.H. Stevenson and Charles Lawrence. And uh, it's really nice because in the newspaper it kind of gives you an idea of the best features of their ability to play cricket. So I'll just kind of read a couple for you just to give you a flavour. Harmon Heathfield Stevenson, born in Esher, Surrey. He is one of the best cricketers of the day for his gentlemanly demeanour and partiality among the profession and much respected. His wicket-keeping is splendid, equalling anyone's as a hitter. He is unquestionably very scientific and his bowling is the most difficult in England, his pace being fast with a peculiar delivery. Hmm. <laughs> I like that. I'd like to see a peculiar delivery. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, and then um, obviously we also have Charles Lawrence as well. Um, so he uh, is recorded as a strike bowler, an all-rounder. And as I said, he was uh, the only member of the team to kind of stay in Australia and um, kind of make a name for himself. 
What did he do? Very interestingly, he worked for Sydney's Albert Club as their, what is recorded as their star performer. And he also ended up owning a sports shop and a hotel over there as well. But he is most uh, notably known for coaching the first ever Indigenous Australian team. Fantastic. And he also um, completely financed their first tournament over here in England. So he financed all of the players to come over here um, and play um, a cricket tournament, which financially kind of ruined him. He ended up working Mm. for the railways afterwards. But yeah, he... uh, Made, uh, made a name for that and really funnily enough a 20 year old WG Grace was actually one of the 20,000 spectators who watched this first indigenous Australian team play. Fantastic he sounds like a fascinating character who else was he playing with? So he was also playing with William Caffin so he is also uh, recorded as a first rate as a bat and bowler um, which position he has held for many years we've got William Mortlock George Griffith Thomas Sewell, Edward Stevenson, William Moody, uh, Roger Idison, and then obviously we've got our friend Charles Lawrence as well. Ah, fantastic stuff. And um, while we're talking about people on board the ship, were there any other interesting characters who weren't cricketers? Uh, There were loads of very interesting characters that kind of travelled on board the ship throughout her history. Because she was such... um, she was such ahead of her time. She was new technology, especially when she first kind of set sail. She only sold about 75 tickets out of the 300 capacity because people in the 19th century didn't believe she would make it to New York. They thought she would sink. <laughs> well, ironically, they were right but they, um, <laughs> when she went aground. But I think one of the major fears was blowing up. They thought they should, the, the, the engines would blow up. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot of fear around this kind of new unknown technology kind of you know an iron hold ship a steam engine so for some that 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 did put some off but then for others it was kind of um prestigious to travel on this kind of you know uh ship that was showcasing all of this new technology this revolutionary technology so we we do have records of some very very interesting individuals traveling on board particularly going to new york we have uh, uh mr george everest who uh, mm-hmm. may sound very familiar to some people. Uh, he is the gentleman who the who Mount Everest was named after. Wow. And, yeah, he was the Surveyor General of India from 1830 to 1843, and he is largely responsible for surveying uh, the Meridian Arc from the southernmost point of India to Nepal. Mm. He managed to name the world's highest peak, which is pretty good yeah, going. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and, yeah, actually, he didn't... He wasn't quite OK with the, the mountain being named after him, actually. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't want it to happen... Uh, well, he didn't want his namesake being attached to the mountain. Uh, and the reasons he gave is that uh, the, the native or indigenous people of India couldn't pronounce it, and it couldn't easily be written in Hindi. Ah. But the the Royal Geographical Society went ahead with it anyway uh, and named the mountain after him in 1865. So um, this was... Everest was travelling on the ship before all of this happened. He had just retired from his post as Surveyor General in India and he was uh, travelling to New York 
reasons unknown. We haven't kind of worked out what he was doing on board. We know he was lieutenant colonel at the time and he was travelling with two attendants, but we don't know whether he was going to New York for business or for pleasure. <laughs> Naming mountains. Is probably, if we look closely, <laughs> there are probably more Everest mountains in America. Um, and uh, I see here um, Avonia Jones. She sounds interesting. Yes. Um, so uh, we did have uh, quite a few actresses and dancers travelling on board. And one of those individuals was a young lady called Avonia Jones. She was actually American, born in New York City in 1839. Her first appearance on stage was in 1856. She was travelling back from Melbourne to Liverpool on the SS Great Britain. So this was kind of the return journey she was travelling on uh, with another actor called Gustavus Von Brook and her mother, Melinda Jones. What's kind of scandalous about this is that they, Gustavus and Avonia would later get married, but unfortunately Gustavus was uh, already married at the time that they were travelling together on the ship. So, yeah, there could be, could be a bit of scandal going on there. Um, so she came to England and to perform at the Drulian Theatre to star in the, the role as uh, Medea. And, yeah, so she kind of did the London circuit for a little bit uh, and then returned to America in 1863, where she toured man- most of the Union-held areas of the Confederacy and even performed for Abraham Lincoln and his family at Grosvenor Theatre in Washington. Fascinating stuff. Well, it sounds like you get a few characters on the, on the SS Great Britain. Let's go, back <laughs> to the, let's go back to the cricket. Now, I understand you've got a, um, a little cricket exhibition which is going on display. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, so we have a display here on site in our Dockyard Museum, which will be launching next Friday to coincide with the start of the Ashes. And in there you can discover more about the first All England Eleven team uh, in 1861. Uh, And we also have on display a few very beautiful personal items that belong to E.M. Grace, including a souvenir silver cricket ball, and his actual diary as well. Oh, wonderful stuff. And um, just before we go, tell us about what happened on the tour. I want to know, I'm assuming the English one. I'm hoping (laughs) they did. On the tour, when when they first arrived in Melbourne, the team got a, a tremendous welcome by the people... And the match in Sydney attracted 15,000 to 20,000 spectators. And you were right. They did win. They won, well, they won seven of their 13 matches. And as I said, they were uh, encouraged to stay on. But most of them went home due to other commitments. I tell you what, a crowd of 15,000 people in Melbourne in 1861 is an extremely large proportion of the people who lived in Melbourne. I don't know off the top of my head what the population of Melbourne is, but I tell you what, 15,000 is most of them. Yeah, yeah. It just goes to show just how big this sport was getting in Australia. And yeah, the first ever ever English cricket team to come and uh, play was um, a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. You know, fascinating stuff. Um so they played 13 and won seven. I'm not sure how that bodes for this summer. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, it's good. maybe it'll end up being a two-all draw. Uh, Natalie, thank you very much indeed for sharing us this story. And I'd urge you all to go and um, check out this, uh, this brilliant exhibition at the SS Great Britain.
Thank you all so much for listening. If you're interested in the maritime history of Australia, of which this story is a part, then do please go back and listen to our episodes exploring it. I've been to Perth and looked at shipwrecks and Brisbane and looked at dry docks and pearling luggers. And next up, I think, is the most interesting episode of the lot. It's on Aborigines and the sea. So keep your eyes open and your ears ready for that. It's coming soon. Don't forget that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please do all you can to check out what both of those brilliant institutions are doing. The Lloyd's Register Foundation you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. That takes you to their History and Education Centre. And be sure to check out their brilliant new project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. They are filming the world's best ship models using the very latest camera technology. I've been involved in it. It's absolutely fabulous. Just come back from Stockholm. There'll be some Swedish content for you there soon. And the Society for Nautical Research you can find at snr.org.uk where you can join up. Please do so. It doesn't cost very much. It's a brilliant way to find out about the maritime past and to meet people. So hopefully I'll see you at one of the meetings soon. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.